Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Loris Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta History Center has a new exhibit honoring first responders who lost their lives on 9-11. Later this hour, we'll hear about Responding Heroes, Remembering September 11, 2001. On that date, Time stood still for a moment before the world was changed forever. And then heroes sprang into action to help those affected by the terror attacks. One small town in Newfoundland became famous for its hospitality that day. The Broadway musical Come From Away was inspired by this true story of friendly Canadians who took in nearly 7,000 stranded passengers, offering comfort and hope. When the musical came to the Fox in 2019, I spoke with Beverly Bass, the American Airlines pilot who landed one of the 38 diverted planes to Newfoundland, and Becky Galsvik, who portrays Beverly in the musical. Bass started our conversation with what happened in Newfoundland on that fateful day. On 9-11, there were 38 airplanes, 38 wide bodies actually, that landed in Gander once the airspace was closed in the U.S. And we actually landed in a three-hour time frame on that day the town had a population of 9,400 people, and we were roughly 7,000 passengers and crew members who arrived in that time frame, and we stayed for five days. And um, you were actually, uh, you and the passengers were actually not allowed to leave the plane for a long time, wasn't that so? Right. It took a long time to be able to coordinate transportation. The school bus drivers were actually on strike when we arrived. And so, you know, we needed them to be able to get the passengers to wherever they were going to stay. So we were actually on my airplane for 28 hours before we got off. We had flown for seven when we landed. And when we touched down, they came on the airplane and said, you will not be getting off until tomorrow. And that was 21 hours later. Oh. So 
It was I a long time. Only imagine the tension, the stories, the fears that were, you know, bubbling up inside of the cabin. Becky, what is the meaning of the title of the play, Come ah, From Away? <laughs> Come From Away, the title that so many people have trouble remembering, but not after you've seen it. <laughs> come From Away, um, it's about the people that come from away. They uh, were sometimes called the plain people, those that landed in Gander and were taken care of for those five days. But anyone that's come from somewhere else, the come from aways. And uh, that expression, I think, is specific to Gander or to Newfoundland? It's Newfoundland. Yes, if you were not born in Newfoundland, you have come from away. <laughs> I, in um, doing some of the prep, I was uh, really charmed by listening to some of the ganderers ganderites 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 <laughs> um speaking it almost sounds like a little bit of scottish inflection which i guess shouldn't be so surprising considering nova scotia and you know who all settled there but it it really was quite charming to listen to them speak and i can only imagine how much of a godsend it was for you to hear them speak when they came to your aid beverly you were the first woman captain yes <laughs> of an airplane for american airlines when did you decide that you wanted to fly planes? Well, it was my whole life. I, I don't remember a time when I didn't want to fly. And I announced to my parents when I was eight years old that I was going to be a pilot. And, and really, that never changed. Had you been on a plane? Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> okay. as a small child, yes, we flew to New York and Florida and all of that. But I uh, took my first flying lesson, and when I came home, I walked into the house and announced to my parents that I would fly for the rest of my life. Today, I'm 67 years old, and I'm still flying. So I think that was a true statement. <laughs> Bravo. Now, we have a clip of Becky Goldsvig singing Me and the Sky, which is a song about Beverly's dreams of becoming a pilot. Let's hear it. American Airlines had the prettiest planes, so I applied as a flight engineer. But the World War II pilots, they all complained. They said girls shouldn't be in the cockpit. Hey, lady, hey, baby, hey, why don't you grab us a drink? And the flight attendants weren't my friends back then, and they said, are you better than us, do you think? But I kept getting hired and the World War II crew, they retired and the girls all thought much higher of me. 1986, the first female American captain in history. Suddenly I'm in the cockpit. Suddenly I've got my wings. Suddenly all of the pilots protested me. Well, they can get their own drinks. Ha! Suddenly there's no one saying stay grounded, looking down, passing them by. Oh, those lyrics are so clever, and your voice is fabulous, oh, Becky. thank you. Now, um, Becky 
is the touring Beverly. There was another Beverly on Broadway originally. Beverly, what is this like seeing other women as you? It is just unbelievable. They keep multiplying. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it started with Jen Colella, and then, of course, the Toronto cast with EJ, and then Becky came on board, and Rachel Tucker in London, and now Zoe Gertz will open in Australia. So I'm multiplying. It's amazing. And and this gives true meaning to coming on board when, when you say it. Stepping back um, into the lyrics a bit, would you tell us something about the kind of sex discrimination you encountered? Well, in all fairness, the discrimination that I really noticed was before I got hired by American. That's when it was really hard to get a job as a female pilot because there were so few of us. And I did my flying in Texas, and they just hadn't seen many female pilots. Once I got hired by American, I I was really treated beautifully. And what I tell young girls today is if you are good at your job and you maintain respect, the guys actually love working with you. So I I had a wonderful time in my 32-year career at American. That is very heartening to know. And wow, that speaks magnificently for American, but I I was watching, I think, um, the documentary about the making of the play. You flew, um, your first gig was flying for an undertaker? Yes, I actually (laughs) flew for a mortician. Okay. And the airplane was so small, it was one body at a time. (laughs) They were not in a casket. They were just on a stretcher with a sheet over them. And they took the two back seats out, and the right front seat was folded down. So their head was, you know, right next to my legs. I had to climb over their face to get to my seat. Death was your co-pilot. And they were covered with a sheet, you know. But I would always put my charts on their oh, I face. Can, I can imagine your parents saying, <laughs> yeah. this is what we provided in education. Know. But I was so proud of the job because it was the first time that somebody was actually paying me to fly an airplane. And, of course, I had many jobs after that. And, and it gave me the foundation to progress to other jobs. Oh, fantastic. Now... We, we are going back and forth um, between very serious subject matter and um, the uplifting beauty of the play. Once you received the orders to land in Gander, Beverly, what did you tell the passengers over the PA system? Well, at that time, we really didn't know very much. We didn't know any details as to what had happened. And so I said, ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Bass. There's been a crisis in the United States. All of the US airspace is closed and we will be landing our airplane in Gander, Newfoundland. As soon as we get on the ground, I'll get back to you with more information. And I had made up my mind that I was going to tell the truth but very little of it, and recognizing I, I didn't know much more than yeah, that. Yeah, which probably and made it easier. It did. Yeah. 
It did. And so when we got on the ground, the passengers were actually learning what had happened before I did because we didn't have cell phones. And only a few passengers had them on the airplane at that time. Sure. Gosh. Now, after you and the passengers deplaned after 28 hours, how did the people of Gander greet you? What were they saying? Well, I think the most amazing thing for me is we actually got off the airplane at 7.30 in the morning on September 12th. And of course, we as crew members had been up all night long, so we're very haggard. We're very tired. We walked into the tiny terminal in Gander, and it is literally lined with tables and tables of cooked food. And it told me that every stove in Gander had been turned on, and they literally cooked enough food to feed 7,000 passengers. And when we got off the airplane, they handed us a bag and said, just take what you want. You know, it was like Halloween, only we were putting food in our bags. And, you know, the stories just didn't end from that moment on. Would you tell us about how you were approached by the producers who wanted to turn this event into a musical. What was your first reaction? Yes, well, actually, we went back to Gander for the 10th anniversary, and that is when we had the opportunity to meet the playwrights, David Hine and Irene Sankoff. And we did. We all did a lot of interviews for the Evening News, who were looking for five-second sound bites. But when I did the interview with David and Irene, it lasted four hours. But then we flew back to Texas, and I never really thought about it again. I didn't know too much about theater. I didn't know anything about what playwrights were or anything. And then four years later, we got a call from the producers of Come From Away inviting us to the world premiere opening in La Jolla. So we flew to La Jolla and saw the opening show. We didn't know anything about it before we saw it. I didn't know that the song Me in the Sky had been written. I did not know how prominent my character is in the show. We didn't know any of that ahead of time. Becky, tell us about um, preparing for the role of Beverly. Did did you two have conversations before you start in the play? I was lucky enough to meet Bev before I started rehearsals. We had lunch before we had an interview, and I was uh, a bit daunted because I hadn't learned the show yet, and I was about to talk about the show with the woman I was playing. <laughs> but luckily, from the very beginning, Bev has just been the kindest, sweetest, most supportive person ever, and it's an honor to portray her. There's so much material to read about that day and things to watch about that day, but meeting Bev and knowing the sort of spirit of her that I want to honor, and then also wanting to honor what the artistic team created with this piece, and it's just... Uh, it's been an honor to be a part of it. Wow. Before the show went to Broadway, Come From Away was performed in Gander for the people who lived there. Beverly, have you returned to Gander more than once since? <laughs> yes, I have. I actually, in my flying career, I flew seven years after 9-11, and I had two more medical emergency diverts into Gander. So I've diverted there three times. But 
as a personal vacation, we've gone back to Gander six times. And uh, we did go back when they performed the concert for the people there. That was something that was very important for the writers to do. They always wanted to take it back to the people of Gander because really that is what the show is about. You know, it's not about me. It's about the people of Gander and everything that they did for us while we were there. So they knew that a lot of those people would never have the opportunity to come to the States or even to Toronto. So uh, it was very fun well, for it to be performed in front of the locals. It's such an extraordinary testament to the human spirit and and goodness in the face of evil. I mean, I could see why some producers thought this belongs on stage. Any thoughts, any talk about a film? Well, there has been some talk, but honestly, they're so busy right now with the world tour. I mean, in once Australia opens, um, the show will have five cast in four countries on three continents playing eight times a week to sell out audiences. So it's just been amazing. So yes, there has been talk about a movie, but I'm not sure where that stands right now. Okay, I like the way that you are reciting these numbers (laughs) uh, very authoritatively. (laughs) I understand there's an interesting number associated with how many times you and your husband have seen the show. Uh, As of last night, that was number 131 for me and 129 for my husband. But in Australia, he will catch up to me because (laughs) I can't stay the whole time, and he'll be there for many shows. Okay, so literally um, more than 100 times. Are there still things that seem new? Are there things that stand out that you hadn't noticed before? Well, of course, I know every word of the show, although they'll never ask me to stand in because I can't sing and I can't dance. (laughs) Becky, you're safe. (laughs) I'm not worried. (laughs) They they know that. Um, But, you know, honestly, both my husband and I still tear up a little bit at every performance, maybe in different places. Um, And and what I tell people about the show when they're concerned about seeing anything associated with 9-11, we all refer to it as a 9-12 show. It is about all the wonderful things that happened to us in Canada while our country was suffering through the most horrific tragedy in American history. But, But yes, we still love the show every time we see it. What was it like? Flying back to the U.S. after you were given permission to fly again. Right. Well, it was a long trip home. It was about six and a half to seven hours. And I think everybody was just in a state of exhaustion. But my passengers had had the most wonderful time. I went back and walked through the airplane and talked to as many people as I could. And they handed me gifts and pens and things they had collected from Gander, every single one had a story about what they did while they stayed there. I mean, they were entertained. They had barbecues. They went on canoe trips. They hiked. We had four days of beautiful weather, unseasonably warm. So they were out and about mingling with the people in the town the whole time. Me, not so much. 
I stayed at the Comfort Inn and rarely left because I never knew when I was going to get the call to fly home. In just the couple minutes we have left, let's listen to another song. One of its last, one of the last songs in the play, Something's Missing. Back to the way that things were. Back to the simple and plain. For five days the weather had been so nice. But as they boarded, it started to rain. At the end of the day, after everyone left, we all tried to go back to normal, except the town was more quiet and somehow far emptier. We all looked the same, but we're different than we were. The gym was a sight as I stacked the last cot. Thank yous written everywhere and things they forgot. The Board of Health says clean it up every part. So we start 7.42 a.m. Sunday, September 16th. After five days, they just ran the Zamboni over the ice and played hockey. With the plain people gone, Gander Town Council declares a state of emergency over, and I head home. We were all exhausted, just spent. Most of us have been up for five days straight working. But somehow I can't sleep, so I sit down, turn on the television, and I just start crying. I hadn't let myself cry the whole time. Something's gone. We read about ba- battle bonding among soldiers during war. Um, This is an extraordinary form of bonding in celebration of peace. Do you think that for today, Come From Away has a message for the crisis with refugees and those seeking asylum? I think this message of come from away resonates in every corner of the world right now. The idea that kindness can heal and that caring can help and that you can be the good in the world in the face of awful, awful tragedy. Um, it, it is such an inspiring show and it inspires you in your daily life from the long line at the grocery store to just not be the person being mean, to just be patient and be kind to the person behind you, to the larger events in the world that demand us all come together and, and be the good. It's, um, it's a really important message for everybody. And, you know, it is a, there are heavy moments in the show, but there's so much joy and there's so much laughter and there's so much great music. It's well, really a celebration. Actress Becky Goldsvig and American Airlines pilot Beverly Bass. A film capture of the musical is streaming now on Apple TV+. The show was recorded at Broadway's Schoenfeld Theater, where the musical will return to live performance later this month. More information about Come From Away will be on our website wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, 
the Atlanta History Center's exhibit, Responding Heroes, Remembering September 11th, 2001. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. To honor the first responders who lost their lives on September 11th, the Atlanta History Center has a new temporary exhibition on view, Responding Heroes, Remembering September 11th, 2001. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes has more. The exhibit features artwork from various mediums showcasing the memories of those who were on the front lines of the rescue efforts. Michael Rose, chief mission officer for the Atlanta History Center, said some of the artwork on display was created by first responders. It includes portraits of first responders. Uh, They were all done by Brenda Berkman who was actually a first responder herself on September 11th, a series of portraits of the women of 9-11. So they were all working on 9-11 in the uh, New York area. And also there are some lithographs uh, that were done. Those were done as actually trauma treatment by one of the first responders. Artwork that was created to honor first responders will also be on display. Simple things as easy as the uh, U.S. postage stamps that were created the following year in honor of the first responders, as well as an EMS journal with a cover story on 9-11, and also some actual, some Marvel comic publications that were created in honor of 9-11 as well. Additionally, the exhibit includes physical artifacts from Ground Zero, oral histories, and an interactive element in which viewers can share their feelings. We also have a piece, actually, of the building itself, the North Tower, and that is in uh, what we consider a kind of a memorial room that will have a timeline of the day, as well as a, a piece of chain link fence that we're asking the public to write a memorials or comments and, and leave as, sort of as an interactive. There are some interviews that have been conducted by first responders, as well as on one occasion, a particular individual who was in one of the towers on 9-11. It will be available both on our website, on a blog post uh, related to 9-11, as well as through the exhibition, through a QR code, and you'll be able to pull that up on your mobile device. Rose went on to explain why the National EMS Museum created the exhibit for Atlanta. The National EMS Organization 
is having their annual meeting here in Atlanta in early October. So we actually started talking to uh, the museum about doing something that would honor first responders related to that national meeting. And then once our conversations got started going, we started talking about doing something in time for for 9-11. So again, we are extremely grateful to the uh, EMS Museum because they were able to pull this together in a very short period of time. Michael Rose, Chief Mission Officer of the Atlanta History Center and City Light Senior Producer Kim Drobes, Responding Heroes, Remembering September 11, 2001, will be on view at the Atlanta History Center through October 17th. You can learn more about the exhibit on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll listen back to my interview with the creators of the documentary Surviving the Silence. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Thousands of Americans enlisted in the U.S. military following the 9-11 terror attacks in 2001, and among them were countless soldiers from the LGBTQ community. Yet it wasn't until 10 years later, in 2011, that openly gay, lesbian, and bisexual men and women would be permitted to serve in the military. The documentary Surviving the Silence shares the story of two women in love who helped to change military policy and bring an end to the don't ask, don't tell years. When the film came out in 2020, the director, Cindy L. Abel, and the producer, Mark Smolowitz, joined me via Zoom. Here they explain why they created the documentary. When I first met Colonel Patsy Thompson and her now wife, Barbara Brass, I was first drawn by their love story. How does a relationship last over three decades when they've had to pretend that, in fact, they weren't actually a couple? And they didn't have the benefit, of course, of cell phones and texting and email like we do now. And so when Colonel Thompson would be away at the Pentagon where she served for three years as the chief nurse of the Army National Guard, they would send letters, but they also had to speak in code when they'd have the opportunity to speak on the telephone. So I was first drawn in by their love story. And as I learned the connection to LGBTQ history, history that would eventually help dismantle the anti-gay and lesbian policy of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I thought, wow, how could a storyteller resist such a story, a love story that reveals unknown history? I knew that I had to make this movie. Mm. Can you give our listeners a synopsis of who the film follows? The film follows two women in love who helped change the course of military history. Colonel Patsy Thompson had been in the military for nearly 35 years at this point when she was tasked with expelling 
a lesbian, an army hero, Colonel Margareta Kammermeyer from the army for having admitted that she was a lesbian. But the way in which closeted Colonel Thompson did it led to Colonel Kammermeyer's reinstatement eventually via federal court. Yeah, but boy, what they had to go through before that. Um, I must say the part of the film when Colonel Thompson reveals what she had to tell Colonel Kammermeyer is gut-wrenching. I mean, I keep going back to my introduction, I guess, very naive on my part, but here are people who are brave and want nothing more than to serve their country, and this is how they're treated. What was the policy on LGBTQ people in the military before Don't Ask, Don't Tell? The official policy was that homosexuality is incompatible with military service. Bisexual folks and transgender folks weren't even in the picture. They weren't even mentioned. So gay men and lesbians were told, you cannot be homosexual and serve in the military. Before this documentary, I hadn't really thought about how partners of gay people in the military were impacted by this secrecy that was required if they wanted to maintain their jobs. Colonel Pat Thompson's wife, Barbara Brass, really had to keep a low profile, whether at banquets, phone conversations, you bring out that this was before cell phones, and living together, you know, having to live this facade as friends or or sisters with Colonel Thompson's previous partner. Why was it essential for her to keep her sexual identity under wraps, that is, for Barbara Brass, even though she wasn't in the military? Barbara Brass knew that any time that she might be outed, if you will, as a lesbian, it would have an impact on her part, her then partner, Colonel Thompson. And so if Colonel Thompson was living with a lesbian, even if somehow they'd been able to prove to some degree that they weren't actually partners, she would have been automatically discharged. You know, there were witch hunts and Colonel Thompson talks in our film Surviving the Silence about having friends who were discharged just purely under suspicion of having been lesbians. So Barbara Brass was willing to sacrifice her own personal career choices, her desire to be out. You know, let's remember that when they were first getting becoming a couple, there was a lot going on with regard to LGBTQ rights. You know, that was shortly after Stonewall. People were starting to talk about this. And as visibility increased, so did discrimination, so did hate crimes. So Barbara knew that in addition to protecting Patsy's career, they also had to pay attention at home. And so they would, when asked, they would choose to lie in order to protect their relationship, as well as to protect Pat's career, and also to have an element of safety when they were in their own home. Yeah, there's another poignant moment in the film when a neighbor comes over 
to ask what they really are. Would you talk about that? Sure. They were out in the front. And by this time, Patsy and Barbara had been renovating the home, things like that, and making it more comfortable and really doing their own version of a HGTV show, if you will. And a neighbor came over and said, what is the relationship between you two women? And Patsy said, oh, we're sisters. And this is where her strength as a kind Southern lady was really put to the test because she was able to have the strength to look this man in the eye and at the same time to give him the answer that she knew he was looking for in order to preserve their own relationship, their own secrecy that required them to be in the closet. And so she simply said, we're sisters. And this neighbor said, I knew it. That's what I told them. I knew you were sisters. And that right there revealed one of their worst fears is that people were talking, people were speculating, people were wondering about their relationship, which put them in jeopardy. And the neighbor is relieved to hear that as as if anyone would ever imagine asking a hetero couple, what are you two? It's so difficult to comprehend how recent this discrimination was. Barbara is the founder of the Rat Pack. What does that organization do? And it has nothing to do with Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin or any of those guys. Right. The Rat Pack is Resistance Actions Tuesdays and Thursdays. And this group gets together uh, twice a week and they stand on a corner outside of their congressperson's local California office and they protest and they raise awareness about what's going on. And this was started very shortly after uh, the current president had been inaugurated. And they said, this is wrong. This is not a good thing. This is horrible where we're going with our country. And so they founded this organization. And the first day there were seven people there. And within two weeks, there were over a hundred. And these folks get together twice a week to hold signs that talk about, you know, Pat has a sign that she loves to hold. And it says, no wall, love all that raises awareness about immigration issues. And so they've gone beyond coming out as a lesbian couple and they're really moving into a broader scope of social justice and looking at the intersectionality of these issues and taking a stand that all people in this country need to have the same rights and the same opportunities and the same responsibilities. And Pat talks in our film about how This is what she fought for. This is why she was willing to give up 37 years of her life and choose to live in the closet in order to serve this greater ideal of the promise of America. Colonel Thompson played a big role in the discharge of Colonel Margareta Kammermeyer. How did Thompson's decision on the board result in... Colonel Kammermeyer being reinstated later on. When Colonel Thompson was faced with the, the challenge, the, the horrible challenge of having to discharge Colonel Margareta Kammermeyer, you know, there were three things that she could have done. One, she could have just simply refused. Another thing, she, but she knew that someone then would be 
put in her place and that Colonel Kammermeyer would of course be expelled because that's what the rules and regulations said. The other thing she could have done was to do the bare minimum and just quickly manage this, process it, and keep it moving, which is what the army wanted her to do. But at, at risk to herself, she kept holding the army at bay and saying, hold on, we're working on it as quickly as we can. And she allowed Colonel Kammermeyer's legal team to get all the paperwork together, to get all the testimonies they needed, to get all the witnesses they needed, and then to allow that to be admitted into this military board and have it be heard in hopes that maybe someday all of this evidence of what a, an amazing army hero Colonel Kammermeyer was, in hopes that this evidence would someday cause her to be reinstated. She didn't know that then it would be taken to federal court and that this would be the turning point by listening to all of this testimony. She just knew she had to do everything she could, even though it put her at higher scrutiny because she was telling the army to slow down and to hold off. Mark, were you aware of this story before the film? Well, you know, I was not aware of the story of Patsy and Barb, but I was, of course, aware of Greta Kammermeyer, right? So, you know, Greta Kammermeyer is such an important person in kind of what, you know, I see as recent LGBTQ history. You know, her story unfolded in the 90s. And, you know, I was in my 20s in the 1990s. And that was a very defining decade for me with respect to all LGBTQ issues. And, you know, was you know, highly aware of her important role in sort of the mainstreaming of our communities um, and certainly in Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I had a personal memory of being at the Castro Theater in San Francisco where I live um, in the mid nineties when the, um, the original television movie uh, Serving in Silence premiered there. And that was a film that was based on Kammermeyer's memoir of the same name. And it was executive produced by Barbara Streisand and it starred Glenn Close as Kammermeyer. And um, my own sort of, you know, personal tie-in here is that um, Barb and Pat were actually in that audience in the mid nineties, as was I. And every time I think about that, how, you know, so many years ago, we were in the same room watching a film about, that was indirectly about their story, you know, and it's referred to in, in one of the conversations um, towards the end of the movie. In, and that's, you know, that's what I think is so powerful here is that, you know, you have these women come together ultimately to sort of talk to each other about their role in this um, little known history. And, and when I was approached by Cindy, I mean, going back to 2014, that we've been working on this together for six years, you know, I'm in the Bay Area, so I live relatively close to Barb and Pat. So it wasn't too long that I was able to actually meet these women in person, spend meaningful time with them and get to know them and fell in love with them like everyone does. So apparent, they're, they're beloved. And the whole Rat Pack piece of their story is has, was always um, very important here because if you when you watch our film, if you you know especially in the first twenty or so minutes, and you get to know the backstory of these two women being in the closet, well, that material was shot by Cindy and her her cinematographer, you know, back around 2014, 2015. and this is not long after Barbie and Pat actually came out of the closet, and Cindy can tell you about that sort of defining event for them, but Barb herself is still so hypervigilant and focused on the narrative of safety. And, and you can feel it in her voice. You can hear it in her, how she tells her story, that there's still a lot of fear, that residual fear from their experience over decades of living in the closet. 
And the 2016 election happens. You know, Cindy is continuing to make this film. We're continuing to make this movie. And these women go through a change in 2016 that is so powerful. And that was the piece of the puzzle that really got me incredibly excited because you so rarely see great movies, great documentaries about older LGBTQ women, older queer women. This is such an important part of the story here that older queer women become increasingly invisible. And Barb and Pat have opted in to be out and proud and loud and activists at, you know, very advanced age. And this is, and so they, they were emerging as role models. And that part of the story for me was, was vitally important. And then finally, the point that I've been sort of surprised how few younger LGBTQ people know the story of Greta Kammermeyer. You know, to your point of this wasn't all that long ago. We're talking about, you know, 25 or so years ago, this hugely important moment for the LGBTQ community happens. And you know, if you stopped a younger queer person on the street, you, you know, asked them who she was, she they may not even know who she is. And so it just felt like it was a wonderful chance to kind of reintroduce Kamemeyer's legacy, but to tell that story from a very surprising lens of another love story that was really the story behind the story. So, so that's been sort of my point of view all along and, and just, you know, really backing up Cindy's beautiful vision for telling the story of these three amazing women. Yes. Are you familiar with Eric Cervini? Absolutely. I love Eric's work. Yeah, no, I've been watching his his Facebook Live events, you know, um, around the release of his recent book. He's very talented. I had the pleasure of interviewing him about the Deviant's War, and it's similar. His quest to reveal this heroic figure in Franklin County came to mind watching this film. I applaud you both for bringing these history lessons, these recent history lessons to the fore for all of us. You know, thank you so much for that comment. You know, something that I often think about because I encounter it is LGBTQ history gets really reduced down to three main plot points. The first being Stonewall, the second being AIDS, and the third being um, marriage equality. And obviously all three are incredibly important plot points in you know, the last few decades, right? Um, we have to, you know, there's so much to celebrate and, and contemplate in all three of those elements of our histories. But there, um, there's also many more people who've been, had a seat at the table than Harvey Milk. I mean, yes, Harvey Milk is beloved for all the right reasons, but um, there's so many he heroes and heroines that are worthy of reconsidering, of really highlighting people behind the scenes who were you know, really a part of making social change possible in the second half of the 20th century. I feel like this, this moment in the 2020s is a really great chance to revisit a lot of those contributions from people like these, the three women in our film. I was just gonna simply add that that's to Mark's point this is why it's so important that we have film festivals that are specifically devoted to sharing LGBTQ stories. Film festivals such as Out on Film here in Atlanta, who are devoted to making sure that people do know our history, that we do go beyond the basic stories, if you will, and look at from a contemporary perspective, what happened in the history, so we can go, wow, I had no idea that it took all those different steps. It wasn't just a few court cases here and there. You know, it's been 10 years since the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. 
And to Mark's point, a lot of younger people don't even know that there was such a thing as don't ask, don't tell, and they don't know when it started and when and how it ended. And it's so important that we be able to see ourselves on screen as LGBTQ folks. And it's also important for others to be able to observe our lives and to recognize our shared, our common humanity, and to then have a new perspective on what it's like to be quote unquote other and have understanding and have compassion and to also have an opportunity to change perspectives about what does it mean to be LGBTQ in America and in the world. And I think festivals like Out on Film are really focused on helping bring out not just good entertainment, but also opportunities for shifting our current culture. Yes. It was particularly moving to find out that Colonel Thompson didn't come out to her family until she was 80 years old. Do you want people who are not out or trans people to take away a message of bravery from this film? Absolutely. One of the points that is made through this film, I believe, is that one is never too old to come out. One is never too old to take one step closer towards living more openly and authentically. Whatever that means for someone, whether they're LGBTQ or not, most of us, if not all of us, live with some sort of secret. And if we can release that secret, we can experience a more open life, a life more full of joy and of love. And that's exactly what Colonel Camelware did, what Colonel Thompson did, and what Barbara Brass did. And as we share their stories, I believe it can inspire people to do exactly that. And they're fantastic examples of taking responsibility for the world that we live in right now, however we can. You know, these three women could have said, you know what, I've done my part. I'm going to let someone else take it from here. But they didn't. They're actively engaged, whether it's leading the Rat Pack in different times or as the pandemic started in making masks and donating them to individuals and organizations or coordinating food deliveries. All of this is because they're saying, what can I do to help shift the conversation in the world that we live in? And these are women who are now in their mid sixties and mid eighties, and they're still very actively involved in the world. Director Cindy L. Abel and producer Mark Smolowitz. More information about Surviving the Silence is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, today, as part of their veterans program, the Atlanta Opera is offering active and retired military personnel and their families free access to their streaming platform, Spotlight Media. Plus, all veterans and current military servicemen and women can attend any of the Atlanta Opera main stage productions for free. The 2021-22 season includes Julius Caesar, The Pirates of Penzance, The Barber of Seville, and the revolution of Steve Jobs. Service members and veterans can make reservations starting in October 
and they must be made at least seven days before a performance. This Atlanta Opera program has been around since 2015 as a way to give back to those who have bravely served our country. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, Monday at 11 a.m., the late Congressman John Lewis's longtime aide and writing partner, Andrew Iden, shares the story behind their new, their new graphic book, Run. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There, you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.